Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're hurtling towards the end of the conquest of bread. We've got two more chapters in their entirety, thankfully, right before we get onto the final lengthy chapter about agriculture. So let's get started on our first chapter. Chapter 15 The Division of Labor. Political economy has always confined itself to stating facts occurring in society and justifying them in the interest of the dominant class. Therefore, it pronounces itself in favor of the division of labor in industry. Having found it profitable to capitalists, it has been set up as a principle. Look at the village smith, said Adam Smith, the father of modern political economy. If he has never been accustomed to making nails, he will only succeed by hard toil in forging two or three hundred a day, and even then, they will be bad. But if this same smith has never made anything but nails, he will easily supply as many as 2,300 in the course of a day. And Smith hastened to the conclusion, quote, Divide labor. Specialize. Go on specializing. Let us have smiths who only know how to make heads or points of nails. And by this means we shall produce more. We shall grow rich. End quote. That a smith condemned for life to make the heads of nails would lose all interest in his work? That he would be entirely at the mercy of his employer with his limited handicraft? That he would be out of work four months out of twelve? And that his wages would fall very low down, when it would be easy to replace him by an apprentice? Smith did not think of all this when he exclaimed, Long live the division of labor! This is the real gold mine that will enrich the nation. And all joined him in this cry. And later on, when a Sismondi or a J.B. Say began to understand that the division of labor, instead of enriching the whole nation, only enriches the rich, and that the worker, who is doomed for life to making the 18th part of a pin, grows stupid and sinks into poverty, what did official economists propose? Nothing. They did not say to themselves that by a lifelong grind at one and the same mechanical toil, the worker would lose his intelligence and his spirit of invention, and that, on the contrary, a variety of occupations would result in considerably augmenting the productivity of a nation. But this is the very issue we have now to consider. If, however, learned economists were the only ones to preach the permanent and often hereditary division of labor, we might allow them to preach it as much as they pleased. But the ideas taught by doctors of science filter into men's minds and pervert them, and from repeatedly hearing the division of labor, profits, interest, credit, etc., spoken of as problems long since solved, all middle-class people, and workers too, end by arguing like economists. They venerate the same fetishes. Thus we see most socialists, even those who have not feared to point out the mistakes of economical science, justifying the division of labor. Talk to them about the organization of work during the revolution, and they answer that the division of labor must be maintained, that if you sharpened pins before the revolution, you must go on sharpening them after. True, you will not have to work more than five hours a day, but you will have to sharpen pins all your life, while others will make designs for machines that will enable you to sharpen hundreds of millions of pins during your lifetime, and others again will be specialists in the higher branches of literature, science, 
and art, etc. You were born to sharpen pins, while Pasteur was born to invent the inoculation against anthrax, and the revolution will leave you both to your respective employments. Well, it is this horrible principle, so noxious to society, so brutalizing to the individual, source of so much harm, that we propose to discuss in its diverse manifestations. We know the consequences of the division of labor full well. It is evident that, first of all, we are divided into two classes. On the one hand, producers, who consume very little and are exempt from thinking because they only do physical work, and who work badly because their brains remain inactive. And on the other hand, the consumers, who, producing little or hardly anything, have the privilege of thinking for the others, and who think badly because the whole world of those who toil with their hands is unknown to them. Then, we have the laborers of the soil, who know nothing of machinery, while those who work at machinery ignore everything about agriculture. The idea of modern industry is a child tending a machine that he cannot and must not understand, and a foreman who finds him if his attention flags for a moment. The ideal of industrial agriculture is to do away with the agricultural labor altogether, and to set a man who does odd jobs to tend a steam plow or a threshing machine. The division of labor means labeling and stamping men for life, some to splice ropes in factories, some to be foremen in a business, others to shove huge coal baskets in a particular part of a mine, but none of them to have any idea of machinery as a whole, nor of business, nor of mines. And thereby, they destroy the love of work and the capacity for invention that, at the beginning of modern industry, created the machinery on which we pride ourselves so much. What they have done for individuals, they also wanted to do for nations. Humanity was to be divided into national workshops, having each its specialty. Russia, we were taught, was destined by nature to grow corn, England to spin cotton, Belgium to weave cloth, while Switzerland was to train nurses and governesses. Moreover, each separate city was to establish a specialty. Lyon was to weave silk, Auvergne to make lace, and Paris, fancy articles. In this way, economists said, an immense field was opened for production and consumption, and in this way, an era of limitless wealth for mankind was at hand. However, these great hopes vanished as fast as technical knowledge spread abroad. As long as England stood alone as a weaver of cotton, and as a metal worker on a larger scale, as long as only Paris made artistic fancy articles, etc., all went well. Economists could preach the so-called division of labor without being refuted. But a new current of thought induced by and by all civilized nations to manufacture for themselves. They found it advantageous to produce what they formerly received from other countries, or from their colonies, which in their turn aimed at emancipating themselves from the mother country. Scientific discoveries universalized the methods of production, and henceforth it was useless to pay an exorbitant price abroad for what could easily be produced at home. And now, we see already that this industrial revolution strikes a crushing blow at the theory of division of labor, which for a long time was supposed to be so sound. Chapter 16. The Decentralization of Industry Footnote 1. 
Section 1 After the Napoleonic Wars, Britain had nearly succeeded in ruining the main industries which had sprung up in France at the end of the preceding century. She also became mistress of the seas and had no rivals of importance. She took in the situation and knew how to turn its privileges and advantages to account. She established an industrial monopoly and imposing upon her neighbors her prices for the goods she alone could manufacture, accumulated riches upon riches. But as the middle-class revolution of the 18th century had abolished serfdom and created a proletariat in France, French industry, hampered for a time in its flight, soared again, and from the second half of the 19th century, France ceased to be a tributary of England for manufactured goods. Today, she has grown into a nation with an export trade. She sells far more than £60 million worth of manufactured goods, and two-thirds of these goods are fabrics. The number of Frenchmen working for export or living by their foreign trade is estimated at 3 million. France is therefore no longer England's tributary. In turn, she has striven to monopolize certain branches of foreign industry such as silks and ready-made clothes, and has reaped immense profits therefrom. But she is on the point of losing this monopoly forever, just as England is on the point of losing the monopoly of cotton goods. Travelling eastwards, industry has reached Germany. Fifty years ago, Germany was a tributary of England and France for most manufactured commodities in the higher branches of industry. It is no longer so. In the course of the last 50 years, and especially since the Franco-German War, Germany has completely reorganized her industry. The new factories are stocked with the best machinery. The latest creations of industrial art in cotton goods from Manchester, or in silks from Lyon, etc., are now realized in new German factories. It took two or three generations of workers at Lyon and Manchester to construct the modern machinery, but Germany adopted it in its perfected state. Technical schools, adapted to the needs of industry, supply the factories with an army of intelligent workmen, practical engineers, who can work with both hand and brain. German industry starts at the point which was only reached by Manchester and Lyon after 50 years of groping in the dark, of exertion and experiments. It follows that since Germany manufactures so well at home, she diminishes her imports from France and England year by year. She has not only become their rival in manufactured goods in Asia and in Africa, but also in London and in Paris. Short-sighted people in France may cry out against the Frankfurt Treaty. English manufacturers may explain German competition by little differences in railway tariffs. They may linger on the petty side of questions and neglect great historical facts. But it is nonetheless certain that the main industries, formerly in the hands of England and France, have progressed eastward, and in Germany they have found a country, young, full of energy, possessing an intelligent middle class, and eager, in its turn, to enrich itself by foreign trade. While Germany has freed herself from subjection to France and England, has manufactured her own cotton cloth, and constructed her own machines, in fact, manufactured all commodities, the main industries have also taken root in Russia, 
where the development of manufacture is the more instructive, as it sprang up but yesterday. At the time of the abolition of serfdom in 1861, Russia had hardly any factories. Everything needed in the way of machines, rails, railway engines, fine dress materials, came from the West. Twenty years later, she possessed already 85,000 factories, and the value of the goods manufactured in Russia had increased fourfold. The old machinery was superseded, and now nearly all the steel in use in Russia Three quarters of the iron, two thirds of the coal, all railway engines, railway carriages, rails, nearly all steamers, are made in Russia. Russia, destined, so wrote economists, to remain an agricultural territory, has rapidly developed into a manufacturing country. She orders hardly anything from England, and very little from Germany. Economists hold the customs responsible for these facts. And yet, cottons manufactured in Russia are sold at the same price as in London. Capital taking no cognizance of fatherlands, German and English capitalists, accompanied by engineers and foremen of their own nationalities, have introduced in Russia and in Poland manufactories whose goods compete in excellence with the best from England. If customs were abolished tomorrow, manufacture would only gain by it. Not long ago, the British manufacturers delivered another hard blow to the import of cloth and woolens from the West. They set up in southern and middle Russia immense wool factories, stocked with the most perfect machinery from Bradford, and already now Russia imports only the highest sorts of cloth and woolen fabrics from England, France, and Austria. The remainder is fabricated at home, both in factories and as domestic industries. The main industries not only move eastward, but they are spreading also to the southern peninsulas. The Turin Exhibition of 1884 already demonstrated the progress made in Italian manufactured produce. And, let us not make any mistake about it, the mutual hatred of the French and Italian middle classes has no other origin than their industrial rivalry. Spain is also becoming an industrial country, while in the east, Bohemia has suddenly sprung into importance as a new centre of manufactures, provided with the perfected machinery, and applying the best scientific methods. We might also mention Hungary's rapid progress in the main industries, but let us rather take Brazil as an example. Economists sentenced Brazil to cultivate cotton forever, to export it in its raw state, and to receive cotton cloth from Europe in exchange. In fact, 40 years ago, Brazil had only nine wretched little cotton factories, with 385 spindles. Today, there are 160 cotton mills, possessing 1.5 million spindles at 50,000 looms, which throw 500 million yards of textiles onto the market annually. Even Mexico is now very successful in manufacturing cotton cloth, instead of importing it from Europe. As to the United States, they have quite freed themselves from European tutelage, and have triumphantly developed their manufacturing powers to an enormous extent. But it was India which gave the most striking proof against the specialization of national industry. We all know the theory. The great European nations need colonies. For colonies, send raw material, cotton fiber, unwashed wool, spices, 
etc. to the motherland. And the motherland, under pretense of sending the manufactured wares, gets rid of her damaged stuffs, her machine's scrap iron, and everything which she no longer has any use for. It costs her little to nothing, and nonetheless the articles are sold at exorbitant prices. Such was the theory, such was the practice for a long time. In London and Manchester fortunes were made, while India was being ruined. In the India Museum in London, unheard of riches, collected in Calcutta and Bombay by English merchants, are to be seen. But other English merchants and capitalists conceived the very simple idea that it would be more expedient to exploit the natives of India by making cotton cloth in India itself than to import from 20 to 24 million pounds worth of goods annually. At first, a series of experiments ended in failure. Indian weavers, artists and experts in their own craft, could not inure themselves to factory life. The machinery sent from Liverpool was bad. The climate had to be taken into account, and merchants had to adapt themselves to new conditions. Now fully mastered, before British India could become the menacing rival of the motherland she is today. She now possesses more than 200 cotton mills, which employ about 230,000 workmen, and contain more than 6 million spindles and 80,000 looms, and 40 jute mills with 400,000 spindles. She exports annually to China, to the Dutch Indies, and to Africa, nearly 8 million pounds worth of the same white cotton cloth, said to be England's specialty. And while English workmen are often unemployed and in great want, India women weave cotton by machinery, for the Far East at wages of sixpence a day. In short, the intelligent manufacturers are fully aware that the day is not far off when they will not know what to do with the factory hands who formerly wove cotton cloth for export from England. Besides which, it is becoming more and more evident that India will not import a single ton of iron from England. The initial difficulties in using the coal and iron ore obtained in India have been overcome, and foundries, rivaling those in England, have been built on the shores of the Indian Ocean. Colonies competing with the motherland in its production of manufactured goods, such as the factor which will regulate economy in the 20th century. And why should India not manufacture? What should be the hindrance? Capital? But capital goes wherever there are men, poor enough to be exploited. Knowledge? But knowledge recognizes no national barriers. Technical skill of the worker? No. Are, then, Hindu workmen inferior to the hundreds of thousands of boys and girls, not 18 years old, at present working in the English textile factories? Section 2. After having glanced at national industries, it would be very interesting to turn to some special branches. Let us take silk, for example, an eminently French produce in the first half of the 19th century. We all know how Lyon became the emporium of the silk trade. At first, raw silk was gathered in southern France, till, little by little, they ordered it from Italy, from Spain, from Austria, from the Caucasus, and from Japan for the manufacture of their silk fabrics. In 1875, out of 5 million kilos of raw silk converted into stuffs in the vicinity of Lyon, there were only 400,000 kilos of French silk. But if Lyon manufactured imported silk, why should not Switzerland, Germany, Russia do as much? Consequently, 
silk weaving began to develop in the villages around Zurich. Bale became a great centre of the silk trade. The Caucasian administration engaged women from Marseille and workmen from Lyon to teach Georgians the perfect rearing of silkworms and the art of converting silk into fabrics to the Caucasian peasants. Austria followed, then Germany, with the help of Lyon workmen, built great silk factories. The United States did likewise at Paterson. And today, the silk trade is no longer a French monopoly. Silks are made in Germany, in Austria, in the United States, and in England. And it is now reckoned that one-third of the silk stuffs used in France are imported. In winter, Caucasian peasants weave silk handkerchiefs at a wage that would mean starvation to the silk weavers of Lyon. Italy and Germany send silks to France and Lyon, which in 1870-1874 exported 460 million francs worth of silk fabrics, exports now only at one half of that amount. In fact, the time is not far off when Lyon will only send higher class goods and few novelties as patterns to Germany, Russia and Japan. And so it is in all industries. Belgium has no longer the cloth monopoly. Cloth is made in Germany, in Russia, in Austria, in the United States. Switzerland and the French Jura have no longer a clockwork monopoly. Watches are made everywhere. Scotland no longer refines sugar for Russia. A refined Russian sugar is imported into England. Italy, although neither possessing coal nor iron, makes her own ironclads and engines for her steamers. Chemical industry is no longer an English monopoly. Sulfuric acid and soda are made even in the Urals. Steam engines, made at Winterthur, have acquired everywhere a wide reputation. And at the present moment, Switzerland, which is neither coal nor iron, and no seaports to import them, nothing but excellent technical schools, makes machinery better and cheaper than England. So ends the theory of exchange. The technology of trade, as for all else, is toward decentralization. Every nation finds it advantageous to combine agriculture with the greatest possible variety of factories. The specialization, of which economists spoke so highly, certainly has enriched a number of capitalists but is no longer of any use. On the contrary, it is to the advantage of every region, every nation, to grow their own wheat, their own vegetables, and to manufacture at home most of the produce they consume. This diversity is the surest pledge of the complete development of production by mutual cooperation, and the moving cause of progress, while specialization is now a hindrance to progress. Agriculture can only prosper in proximity to factories, and no sooner does a single factory appear than an infinite variety of other factories must spring up around, so that, mutually supporting and stimulating one another by their inventions, they increase their productivity. Section 3. It is foolish indeed to export wheat and import flour, to export wool and import cloth, to export iron and import machinery. Not only because transportation is a waste of time and money, but above all, because a country with no developed industry inevitably remains behind the times in agriculture, because a country with no large factories to bring steel to a finished condition is doomed to be backward in all other industries, and lastly, 
because the industrial and technical capacities of the nation remain underdeveloped if they are not exercised in a variety of industries. Nowadays, everything holds together in the world of production. Cultivation of the soil is no longer possible without machinery, without great irrigation works, without railways, without manure factories. And to adapt this machinery, these railways, these irrigation engines, etc., to local conditions, a certain spirit of invention and a certain amount of technical skill must be developed. While they necessarily lie dormant so long as spades and plowshares are the only implements of cultivation. If fields are to be properly cultivated, if they are to yield the abundant harvests that man has the right to expect, it is essential that workshops, foundries, and factories develop within the reach of the fields. A variety of occupations and a variety of skill arising therefrom, both working together for a common aim, these are the true forces of progress. And now let us imagine the inhabitants of a city or a territory, whether vast or small, stepping for the first time onto the path of the social revolution. We are sometimes told that nothing will have changed, that the mines, the factories, etc. will be expropriated and proclaimed national or communal property, that every man will go back to his usual work, and that the revolution will then be accomplished. But this is a mere dream. The social revolution cannot take place so simply. We have already mentioned that should the revolution break out tomorrow in Paris, Lyon, or any other city, should the workers lay hands on factories, houses, and banks, present production would be completely revolutionized by this simple fact. International commerce will come to a standstill. So also will the importation of foreign breadstuffs. The circulation of commodities and of provisions will be paralyzed. And then, the city or country in revolt will be compelled to provide for itself and to reorganize its production so as to satisfy its own needs. If it fails to do so, it is death. If it succeeds, it will revolutionize the economic life of the country. The quantity of imported provisions having decreased, consumption having increased, one million Parisians working for exportation purposes have been thrown out of work. A great number of things imported today from distant or neighboring countries not reaching their destination, fancy trade being temporarily at a standstill. What will the inhabitants have to eat six months after the revolution? We think that when the stores containing foodstuffs are empty, the masses will seek to obtain their food from the land. They will see the necessity of cultivating the soil, of combining agricultural production with industrial production, in the suburbs of Paris itself and its environs, they will have to abandon the merely ornamental trades and consider their most urgent need, bread. A great number of the inhabitants of the cities will have to become agriculturists. Not in the same manner as the present peasants who wear themselves out, ploughing for a wage that barely provides them with sufficient food for the year, but by following the principles of the intensive agriculture of the market gardeners, applied on a large scale by means of the best machinery that man has invented or can invent. They will till the land. Not, however, like the country beast of burden, a Paris jeweler would object to that. They will organize cultivation on better principles, and not in the future, but at once, during the revolutionary struggles, from fear of being worsted by the enemy. Agriculture will have to be carried out on intelligent lines, by men and women availing themselves of the experience of the present time, 
organizing themselves in joyous gangs for pleasant work, like those who, a hundred years ago, worked in the Champ de Mar for the Feast of the Federation, a work of delight, when not carried to excess, when scientifically organized, when man invents and improves his tools and is conscious of being a useful member of the community. Of course, they will not only cultivate wheat and oats, they will also produce these things, which they formerly used to order from foreign parts. And let us not forget that for the inhabitants of a revolted territory, foreign parts may include all districts that have not joined in the revolutionary movement. During the revolutions of 1793 and 1871, Paris was made to feel that foreign parts meant even the country district at her very gates. The speculator in grains at Toya starved in 1793 and 1794 the saint of Paris as badly, and even worse, than the German armies brought on to French soil by the Versailles conspirators. The revolted city will be compelled to do without these foreigners. And why not? France invented beetroot sugar when sugarcane ran short during the continental blockade. Parisians developed saltpeter in their cellars when they no longer received any from abroad. Shall we be inferior to our grandfathers, who hardly lisped the first words of science? A revolution is more than a mere change of the prevailing political system. It implies the awakening of human intelligence, the increasing of the inventive spirit tenfold, a hundredfold. It is the dawn of a new science, the science of men like Laplace, Lamarck, Lavoisier. It is a revolution in the minds of men, as deep and deeper still than in their institutions. And there are still economists who tell us that once the revolution is made, everyone will return to his workshop, as if passing through a revolution were going home after a walk in the Epping Forest. To begin with, the sole fact of having laid hands on middle-class property will imply the necessity of completely reorganizing the whole of economic life in the workshops, the dockyards, the factories, and the revolution surely will not fail to act in this direction. Should Paris, during the social revolution, be cut off from the world for a year or two by the supporters of middle-class rule, its millions of intellects, not yet depressed by factory life, that city of little trades which stimulate the spirit of invention, will show the world what man's brain can accomplish without asking for help from without. But the motive force of the sun that gives light, the power of the wind that sweeps away impurities, and the silent life forces at work in the earth we tread on, we shall see then what a variety of trades, mutually cooperating on a spot of the globe and animated by a revolution, can do to feed, clothe, house, and supply with all manner of luxuries millions of intelligent men. We need write no fiction to prove this. What we are sure of, what has already been experimented upon and reorganized as practical, would suffice to carry it into effect. If the attempt were fertilized, vivified by the daring inspiration of the revolution and the spontaneous impulse of the masses. And that concludes our reading for this week. Next week we'll be continuing, starting the very last chapter of the book. Almost certainly not finishing it in one week though. But we should be done with this book this month, with probably some supplemental reading, but not for very long. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, thoughts in general, especially about the conquest of bread, or anarchy more broadly, now is the time to let me know. 
You can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find all sorts of other podcasts. You should also check out the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash abnormalmapping. Support them and get lots of great podcasts, even at the dollar a month tier. The intro natural music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading. <laughs>